If you'll uh, open a Bible to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews is almost at the end of the New Testament. <clears throat> well, in fact, Hebrews 11, I'd like to read the last few verses of Hebrews 11 and then look at the first couple of verses of Hebrews 12. Uh, if you don't know much <coughs> about the book of Hebrews, <coughs> you, if, you, if you know a little bit, you probably know about chapter 11. Chapter 11 <coughs> of Hebrews gives a list of believers faith-filled people that lived during the Old Testament times, and it's just, uh, some people call it the Hall of Fame of Faith. My Bible titles that chapter, The Triumphs of Faith. And so many people have been mentioned, Moses, Jacob, Sarah, others, and when we come toward the end of the chapter in verse 32, kind of a summary paragraph that says this, and I'm going to read from a uh, uh, the New American Standard, which is a little different from the ones on the table. It says, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their fate, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Now chapter 12, first few verses. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. That ends the reading of Scripture. What I'd like to do for the next few moments is just look at verses 1 and 2 of, of Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> One of the uh, guest preachers we've had here at our church, and he's spoken at this luncheon, is Wayne Herring. Wayne is an assistant pastor in Nashville, whose wife has had a severe battle with cancer, by the way, since last summer. But uh, I had him speak to an officer retreat for our elders and deacons some time back, and then he uh, preached here on a Sunday morning. And his sermons at the officer retreat had this theme. Uh, he was talking about sticking with the basics of the Christian life. And so his theme for the conference was, stay with the girl who brought you to the dance. <laughs> stay with the girl who brought you to the dance. One of the basics, one of the non-negotiables of the Christian life is obedience. Jesus said in John chapter 14, whoever has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me. 
And it's not just momentary obedience that is important. It's, it's obedience over the long haul. Um, one man who saw this spiritual truth wrote, The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. Uh, so it's this long obedience in the same direction which the world around us does so much to discourage. The world loves to see uh, followers of God fall. It delights in that. Uh, perhaps it's a form of, of trying to uh, puff yourself up to see other people fail. And so the world beats us down. It throws cold water on our enthusiasm for Christ. Now, I've been uh, walking with Christ since I was in high school. Uh, and a number of people who began with me or before me, from all indication, are no longer in the race. Uh, just by outward appearances and maybe in what they would say, uh, the dropout rate is astounding. Y'all know that. If you've, if you've grown up around churches or if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you, you've seen that. And it can disillusion you in a hurry. And so some cynics look at that and say, you'll fade in time. You just wait. Eventually, you will lose interest. You wait till the hardships of life creep in. Oh, it's easy now when you're a teenager. You wait till you get married. You wait till you have children. Or, or you wait till your health fails you or something out. Then you'll have your eyes open, and you will fold too. But in my case, that has not happened. Uh, and the only reason I say that, because I've witnessed pain. I've witnessed discouragement, broken hearts, crime, violence. I've been there within hours after suicides, death of children, and I'm here to tell you this stuff works. It is real. Now, I would no longer, I would not spend five minutes uh, in ministry if I thought the point of ministry is to tell everybody, be good, be a nice person, and that's why I'm here. The realities of life only serve to convince me of it more and more. Sometime back I was... Uh, a professor at a local college asked me to come and meet with her and a student. This professor was a Christian. She had a student that's life was really in shambles, and this girl was asking a lot of questions. And uh, I had met her one time, and her appearance was shocking with the body piercing and so forth. It was designed to be that way. If she were to walk into a room, everybody would look. And uh, we were talking, and after about an hour why I believed the gospel, she started laughing and said, do you hear yourself? This sounds like science fiction. God sending a man down here to die on a cross? And I said to her, it does sound like science fiction. Who would make a story up like this? And I said, but let me ask you a question. The guy you live with is beating you. You hate your parents. You don't have any answers. And you're laughing at me? And so, but that's what the world does. It was like, your life is miserable. You're laughing at me, you know, from what I'm describing to you as truth. Well, here in Hebrews, the Christian life is compared with a race, a foot race. We're not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews because the author does not identify himself. Some think the Apostle Paul, some think Barnabas. We're not sure, but that really is not that important. We do know it was written to the church that was, you might say, getting old a more mature church from the standpoint of how long they'd been believers, 
but we see that they were settling into routine. They had lost their wartime mentality. And that's evident as <coughs> Hebrews is written, it's to deal with people that maybe grace was no longer amazing to them. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe we'd even say their hands were growing weak, their knees were feeble, and it's easy at that point just to kind of walk with the crowd rather than to run in the marathon. Um, I heard a person say years ago that every ministry, every church needs two things. They need new believers and they need mature believers because the new believers have an enthusiasm that is just real distinct. And older believers hopefully have a maturity and a wisdom that will help. <clears throat> There's no complacency in a foot race. Uh, if, if you watch, most of us, the only time we watch foot races, unless you have a, a child that's on a track team, is, is when the Olympics are on television. And you never see any complacency in sprints <laughs> or marathons or, or anything else. Everyone is giving it their best effort from the moment they step up there. Well, what's the motive for running this race? Uh, it begins with the word therefore in verse 1, pointing back to what has been said before. It refers to the cloud, the multitude, the big group of witnesses, the saints who had lived and died valiantly for the faith. Those that are mentioned in the previous chapter include Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, all those others also who suffered and died, quote, of whom the world was not worthy. Well, how do they witness to us? I realize there's some degree of confusion and disagreement about what this means. Does it refer to that you and I now, in a sense, are in a, a giant uh, on a track in a large stadium and all these believers, including relatives of ours that have gone to be with Christ, that now they're in a, a grandstand like a stadium watching you and saying, there's old Jim down there. Man, stick with it. There's Kenny. Yeah, go, Kenny. Run the race. Is that, is that what it is? Uh, I don't think it's quite that way, though I think most people read this verse and that's what they assume. Let me explain why I think it's a little different than that, and you can consider it. Uh, well, the word witness, to be a witness, can have different meanings. Uh, a witness can be someone who sees something. You, you witness a, uh, a car accident. Uh, or it can be someone who tells something. You're called to be a witness, and you're asked, tell us what you saw and uh, what you heard. Uh, I mentioned the car wreck. I, I used to have an office in the corner of the building, right? Right out there. Well, now I'll tell you something different. I just mentioned Dan Brundage. One day, Dan and I were on the sidewalk in front of the church administration building right out there. And I was standing looking uh, at Dan. We were talking, but I was facing up at the intersection of First Street and Mulberry. And while we were talking, a wreck occurred. Boom! I mean, a collision right there. And I not only saw what happened, I looked up immediately and saw which light was green and which was red. Because, you know, somebody ran the red light. And so I became the witness to the policeman. I said, oh, I saw it right there. And that, the, the light, whichever light, that one was red, and that car went through it. Now, in that sense, first I was a witness and I saw it. So in that, in that case, Chip was a witness. But then I was a witness and that I told about it uh, about 10 or 15 minutes later. Well, my understanding, what I think this is 
is saying is, is the, the main rule in Scripture interpretation is always interpret Scripture with Scripture. You take the parts that aren't clear and interpret them with parts that are clear. Well, since there's nothing in Scripture that says those who die before us watch us or would want to watch us, and I know that sounds harsh. I've had people get angry at me when I've said things like that. And in our culture, often we're, we're, I hear things at funeral services like I know that Aunt Mary is looking down at us right now. You don't find that kind of stuff in the Bible, seriously. But I, I am trying to be careful because I, I, I realize how upset some people get in the church when you say things like that. They, they take great comfort with that. Well, um, we just don't find that there. We don't find that in Scripture. That there's, that's more from Greek mythology. That's like the old Greek gods and goddesses, you know, looking down and like we're on a chessboard down here. So what does it mean then? Uh, if they're not watching us in the sense of cheering us on, go, you know, run, run hard. Well, I think it's that they witness to us as we prepare to run the race and as we run the race. In other words, let's go back to the stadium idea. So maybe here's Noah, and Moses, and Sarah, and others. And in a sense, they witness to us with their lives, look, God is faithful. Look at what happened with me, as, re as described in chapter 11. God was faithful. Or I never saw the fruition of the promise in this life, but by faith I followed, and God fulfilled his promise. Now, based on what he did in my life, I'm witnessing to you, now run the race. That's how I understand it. Okay. Like Noah. All right, here's this man that, that worked on building this ark for roughly 100 years. And he was a target of great ridicule. And he was out of step, with, without question, with the people of his day. And yet he obeyed. And now it's as though he's saying, follow, follow God. Follow him. He is faithful. He will keep his promises. And it's just not one or two that are encouraging us. It's a whole multitude. That's what great cloud means, cloud of witnesses, a lot, many. So if you're a follower of Christ, you are not alone. You may feel alone. You may feel alone in your office or even in your extended family, but you are not. There are others doing the same thing. Uh, I want to plug right now biographies. If you don't read uh, biographies of, of uh, like missionaries and Christian leaders from the past, even short biographies, you are depriving yourself of a great blessing. Um, without a doubt in my life the early books I read most of those were biographical and um, that they still influence me all right what's the plan for running the race he says run without encumbrance run without hindrance if you see an Olympic uh, athlete compete now we were talking uh, earlier I was talking with uh, the youth ministry staff and said you know runners today they they wear the, the shortest of shorts i said no if you think about it they don't even wear that anymore they wear these little high-tech jumpsuit kind of things you know and so you're trying to get the least wind resistance and friction possible so think of a football player for a football player to prepare to compete shoulder pads all pads helmet all this paraphernalia they get a lot heavier to compete but a runner just does just the opposite, to put off everything that would slow uh, that person down. So that's how we are to run. Anything that will slow you down in the race that's called an encumbrance.
And he also says, in the sin that so easily entangles us. So, if you're walking with Christ, I think periodically, not necessarily weekly, but you ought to take time and prayerfully give consideration to your life. Are there encumbrances in your life that slow you down from following Christ? And here, I'm not talking necessarily about sinful things. I think it addresses that. But I'm talking now about things that Paul said would be lawful but not profitable. When my mother was sick uh, in 2006, uh, she was, and ultimately died, uh, she was in a hospital in Montgomery. And at least once or sometimes twice a week, I would drive the three hours over and visit with her and then drive back. And I listened a lot to uh, CDs of Bible teachers. And I listened through a whole series of, of messages that were given at a pastor's conference up in uh, Minneapolis on the subject of money. They pick a theme each year, and that year was, was money. So there was a biographical message on the, on the life of George Mueller. Did that name anything to you? He ran an orphanage in England in the 1800s. He lived by faith. And so one of the messages talked about Mueller because he, he believed like living on a zero bank account and trusting God to provide food and everything else. And it was a remarkable uh, testimony that his life and the hundreds of boys that they influenced. But I listened to Randy Alcorn. He was the main speaker. And if you've read any of his books, and he's written several, but like uh, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, uh, it's the best book I've ever read on a, an extensive study of the Bible and money. And uh, it's, it's about this thick, but it's, it's, it's a great book, very interesting. Well, he was talking, he's talking to probably 1,500 pastors on this message. And he, at the end, he said, I just want to give you some practical advice, some suggestions as pastors. And here, one of the things he said, and there were many, but the one I remembered, he, he said, I would really question whether you ought to ever build a house. Now, I've, I've never been in the position to want to or able to build a house. But he said, that is going to take two years out of your ministry and your life. And if you built a house, you know anything wrong with it? No. Is it sinful to build a house? No. He was saying, can you forfeit that amount of time? When you think about the urgency for eternity... So he said, that I'm not, he's not saying it's wrong, but he said, I would question that. I've heard others say, I heard John Piper in suggestions to pastors say, be careful how much you use computers. And he wasn't talking about the temptation of pornography and stuff you can, problems you can get into with the Internet. He meant anybody with an inquisitive mind, when you sit down with a computer, you're impressed with how much it can do. And if you're not careful, you'll spend, oh, wow, I didn't know it would do this. Oh, wow, it'll do this too. And before you know it, think how much time has gone by. Now, those are just two things that stood out to me. But I think about with this passage. And your list may include a hundred things. Where What are the things in my life that can encumber me and hinder me from walking with Christ and being most effective with him? Are there habits? Are there uses of time? Are there relationships? Are there hobbies? I have to be very careful. My hobbies can quickly become my jobs. So I very much limit. I know myself, and I've got an addictive personality with things like that, and I just I restrict what I do that to about two things. <laughs> Are they sinful? Nope. Uh, will it wreck your family? No. But I don't need to give time to things like that at this stage, this stage of life. Um, run with endurance. 
So run without encumbrance and run with endurance. Jonathan Edwards, the uh, Congregationalist pastor in colonial America, many people regard as the, the greatest intellect that's ever come out uh, of America, uh, a college president later. He's, he's known for many things, but one was a number of resolutions. He, he wrote out a lot of resolutions he had for his life. And I want to read you one that sounds contradictory. It's, this was one that one of his resolutions is he said he never wanted to do anything that he would be afraid to do if he knew it was the last hour of his life. Do you ever read where someone died and you notice what they were doing when they died and had the thought, I'm glad I'm not going to, into eternity with that being the last thing I was involved in? I think, I'm just strange. This pastor has issues. If you don't believe it, come to this church sometime. But I, I think like that a lot. I mean, um, okay. Here's why, but he said he, would, he said he was resolved never to do anything he would be afraid to do if, it, if he knew it was the last hour of his life. Now, here's the resolution I want to read to you that sounds contradictory. Resolved, never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my own corruptions, my own temptations and sins. And then here's the second part. Uh, one, I've resolved never to give over or in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. Let me say it again. So it, he says he's resolved not to do anything he shouldn't do, but he's not going to quit when he does. He's not going to get throw in the towel when he does. So he's sincere. He was sincere in his desire to obey Christ, but he knew that he would fail. And that becomes the issue with can you persevere. When people ask me, or not when people, when I think about David committing adultery with Bathsheba, and here was the king of God's people with just this corruption, and they say, well, look, God restored David to, to, to his position. He didn't take his life, which is what the law required where there's murder and adultery. But... Well, the miracle to me there is that David didn't take his own life. If you remember when Nathan comes to him and rebukes him and says, you're the man, tells him the story of the people with the little lamb and so forth, first thing he says, you, you shall not die. Because David would have known that the death, the, the, the death penalty would have been uh, what he, he, he had uh, uh, earned. Uh, and yet he, he perseveres. To me, that, that, that's remarkable. My first year in seminary, I went to seminary only wanting to learn to study the Bible. I didn't know I, I had no desire to be a preacher or a pastor. I wanted to learn to study the Bible. And at that time, I went to seminary that used a curriculum where the first year is very intense learning Greek and Hebrew. Greek for the New Testament, since most of the New Testament was in Greek, and Hebrew for the Old Testament. And... I think it was uh, the fall or, uh, of that first year of a three-year curriculum. Uh, Hebrew was very, very difficult for me. I have a hard enough time reading from left to right, much less from right to left. <laughs> and that's how Hebrew's written. It goes that way, you know, when you write it. Well, there was a day that there was a test, and I'd studied real hard on this exam, for this exam. And the exam, you had to... Uh, put these forms of words in, and in Hebrew, there's a slightly different um, writing between a long E sound and a short E sound. And it's a matter of a dot. 
This is a short E sound, an upside down triangle, three dots, and a long E sound that's two dots. You leave off the bottom one. You ask me how I remember this, I'm getting ready to tell you. I take this exam and I, I got all the consonants right and I did everything right, but I made the mistake of like putting a long E where a short E should go. I left, or I, I left one dot off. But I, everything was correct all through the exam, but that one mistake occurred throughout. Zero. And I responded the way you just responded. What? Look what I did right. There's no recognition. I made a consistent error that went all the way through. I went back to our apartment. This before we had children. My, my wife was a dietitian in a hospital, so she was away. And I laid back on my bed between classes, and I said, this is miserable. This is miserable all that work, and why is that professor a zero not even recognize what was right there? And I didn't hear God's voice, <laughs> but it was close, and here's what I thought. You came to seminary to prepare for ministry, and ministry is about getting up when you've been knocked down. Now get up, and you've got more studying to do. And I got up, and I kept going. Now if you were to ask me what's the main lesson you learned in seminary out of three years, that's it. <laughs> I, ca I can't go back and repeat any of the lectures I heard or the lessons. Uh, I couldn't redo that Hebrew exam right now, but I just remember that. that. That it'd be easy to fold, but can we get back up with God's strength? That's what it's saying here. Run with endurance. Proverbs 24 says, For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again, but the wicked are brought down by calamity. Now, this is not a Bible study on pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, but we need endurance in walking with Christ. And if you don't think so, you had not been around church people very much. Well, we will disappoint each other. We'll disappoint ourselves, and that's the hardest, when we just let ourselves down. But let's get our minds off that, and now where are we supposed to put our focus? Verse 2 tells us, on Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, and so forth. Christ should be your focal point. If you are to grow in him, if you've come to know him as your redeemer, if you've put your trust in what Jesus did on the cross uh, to pay for your sin problem, to give you new life, then we have to seek to keep our focus on him and our attention to grow. When it says fix your eyes on, we're told in, in ancient athletic events, the early Olympics, Polyphoenician Games and so forth, they didn't have tracks like we have. But they would run toward a pole, and the pole had the colors of the country or the region you represented, like a banner of sorts on those. That would be what you would aim for, in a sense. That's what you would look at as you ran, and that kept you on track. We are to look at Christ. Probably the most famous picture in sports happened in 1954, on August the 7th. And it was in uh, Vancouver, Canada, it was the British Games, it was touted as the Miracle Mile. Here was this run, runner, Roger Bannister and John Landy. They were the only two sub-four-minute milers in the world. And Bannister, Roger Bannister, had been the first man ever to run a sub-four-minute mile. And so both these runners are at the peak of their careers, their condition. And uh, Roger Bannister started out he strategized that he would, it was a four-lap race, he would relax during the third lap, and he'd save everything for the final drive at the end of the fourth lap. 
They come around the third lap. John Landy pours it on. And he's already got a lead, and now he's even got more of a lead. And so immediately Bannister changes his strategy. He adjusts his pace. He's gaining on Landy. He's cut the lead in half. And now they're starting the final lap as they come. And Landy, Landy begins running faster, and Bannister follows him. And then if you've ever seen the picture, Landy, who had the lead, could not hear because of all the noise. He couldn't hear Bannister's footsteps. So do you remember the picture, what he does? He turns around and looks. And when he did that, Bannister beat him, came past him just like that. And so Bannister won this miracle mile. That's what they called it. And uh, Landy took his eyes off the goal. You know, he just he turned his head for a moment. Where are your eyes fixed? And we have to keep them on Christ, that Christ is the object. Now you say, how do I do that? I can't see him. You know, I, I, I can't, he's invisible to us. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Well, it's an issue of the heart that, that we look toward, toward him, not to the right or to the left. And it's tempting to look back, to think where we've been, look at our mistakes, look at our failings. It's tempting to look to the left or the right, look at other people, look at our circumstances, and get all bogged down with that. Uh, but we're told to have a heavenly mindset, as Colossians 3 says, to set our minds on not on earthly things but on heavenly things. Also, back at seminary, I never tell seminary stories. This is strange. This is odd today. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, well, I'm out of time. I'll tell you this when we're finished. Really, I, didn't, I thought I had about four minutes left, but I don't. Uh, when, I was, when we were at seminary, John was a year ahead of me, I think, a year or two. There was a student. Uh, there are many international students, and one was from India. His name was Bahij, and Bahij would come over. He ate supper at our house with, with, with my wife and myself and at our, our apartment, the house I built. <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry, at our apartment uh, where I got all depressed after the Hebrew test. And Bahij... Um, when he came to, to the seminary, I, I wasn't in the class when this happened, but, but someone asked him, the professor asked him in front of all the students, what did you know about America before you came here? He had never been to America before he came to, as a student. And he said, I was told that in America the wealth and the, the privileges and the things are beyond imagination, that what people have in the seminary we attended was in a marginally very poor section of town. If you saw it, you would not be impressed with what, I mean, think that that's what he was describing. And he said, I was told it was, it was just beyond what we could imagine. And then they asked him the key question, what's the reality been? And he said, it is beyond anything I ever imagined with what I heard before I came. Isn't that something? That's what's being described here in Hebrews 12. We fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Let's pray together. Father, we realize it's not how we start, but how we finish. So we pray you'd, you'd help us with, uh, to focus our attention on Christ, that our faith would be in him, that we would be right with you through him. And uh, we pray in his name. Amen.